everyone. Welcome to Rewildology, the show all about conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Think about your strongest passion, the one thing you dedicate your life to. You spend multiple years of your life studying it in school, invest thousands of dollars in student loans to become an expert in your passion, travel to different countries to learn how to study it, and return home years later to make the difference you've been dreaming about. Now imagine you've made the discovery of a lifetime for your passion. Your wildest hopes and dreams have come true. And then, 24 hours later, you realize it is all in immediate peril. What would you do? That's what happened to today's guest, Iroro Tanchi. Born in Nigeria, Iroro grew up watching nature documentaries from all around the world, planting the seeds for her future love of biology. After a short stint trying to become a medical doctor, she turned her interest to environmental science, only to discover that policy wasn't her thing either. Her big breakthrough happened when she signed up for a research course in Uganda, which was led by a UK organization. After years of searching, she finally found what she was looking for, hands-on biological research with bats. After her master's in the UK, Iroro returned to Nigeria to study the status of bats for her PhD. During what seemed like a normal field day, she made the discovery of a lifetime. She successfully trapped a short-tailed round-leaf bat, a species that hadn't been seen in the country for 45 years. However, her elation was soon squandered. Later that evening, they could tell something was wrong. In the distance, they saw a fire heading their way, and they had to leave the forest fast. Since that moment, Iroro has been working diligently learning everything she can about this rare bat and collaborating with local communities to keep these bats alive. Iroro is a 2021 Whitley Award recipient, which is how I met her. If you listened to episode 31 with Pedro Fruet, then you've already heard about this amazing organization. If not, as a quick recap, the Whitley Fund for Nature has given over 18 million pounds in grants to grassroots conservation projects around the world. The Sir David Attenborough is on the board of this organization, which goes to show how prestigious it is. If you're part of a grassroots conservation organization and have an incredible project that needs funding, then I highly recommend you check out the Whitley Awards. If you're liking the show, be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to never miss a future episode. Also, if you'd like to support the show, check out the brand new Rewildology store at rewildology.com. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. Okay, everyone, here is my conversation with Iroro. Thank you so much, Iroro, for coming on today. We're going to have so much fun really exploring your whole path and the amazing work that you're doing. I really can't wait to get into that. But before we get to today, let's head back in time. So tell me about your childhood. Where did you grow up and what was it like for you as a child? Well, thanks for having me, Brooks. This is quite a lovely opportunity to be 
able to speak with you and to sort of chat and just talk about some of this fun stuff that we've been doing. Well, about my childhood, I grew up in Wari in southern Nigeria. And this is right, like right next to the big refinery, oil refinery. And so you're, you're really just talking about an oil city that was not very much into, you know, big environmental stuff, but just let's make the money, make the oil, uh, use the oil and whatever. And so it was very much that kind of city. Uh, but my parents, I guess they kind of provided some, some form of shelter in the sense that uh, even though we didn't really have like a city park or I think it was a city park at one time. I do remember actually going over to, you know, play with some of the park stuff that you basically have for kids, the toys that you have for kids. But I don't remember, I think it sort of got taken over at some point. But anyway, so I'm trying to set the scene for what the city looked like. Okay, so not a lot of green space. Uh, we were not, right next to mangroves, but they weren't sort of touristic in any way. Considered marginal land, really. Um, so there, there wasn't a lot of wildlife in my growing up, if you see what I mean. But I feel like my father's adherence to wildlife documentaries sort of corrected for that. You know, so I didn't grow up with a pet. I didn't grow up, you know, going to going to the zoo every day or whatever. The only thing my dad would let you watch on TV would be uh, nature documentaries. You know, so that really did correct, and that's why I said I feel I feel like I got sheltered a lot by my parents in that regard. So you know, I didn't move schools that many times. It was just it was like really laid back, even though my parents were quite demanding. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But it was still kind of chill. It wasn't the pressure. The only pressure you got from home was really just to be uh, good academically. You know, it's like um, you have to just do your homework and make sure you're translating what you're learning at school at home as well, like Mm -hmm. in your everyday life. I think that was the big thing with my father, too. He was very much the type of person who was like, you're not going to school just to earn grades and whatever. But, you know, it's it's for live education, so to speak. So you've got to really bring it in and bring it together. And, you know, that's kind of the childhood I had. We would go to church on Sundays. We There wasn't a lot of social life, but there was the occasional. So the, the, the most I got of social life was being in professional circles. So there will be like professional parties or professional cocktails or professional annual meetings. And my dad would take us. Like, I think maybe some of it was, oh, there wasn't really someone who could come babysit us or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so I kind of grew up in a very professional space because my dad was a surveyor and still is, but my mom was a school teacher and so it was very much about your book your book your book oh and come hang out with us and our friends and you know there was the occasional birthday party here or there that we will go to but beyond that um I hope I'm not making it sound like my life was really boring. No, I mean, it sounded like (laughs) I mean but that's why I love exploring this because it really it really sets the foundation for everything from that point on. So somewhere in your childhood, there must have been a reason why or a moment in time when you decided that you wanted to go into conservation work, because it sounds like you had the foundation where you could have done anything, anything professionally. You probably could have been a lawyer, a doctor, anything, but you decided to go down the conservation route. So what happened? What led to that inspiration to dedicate your life to this? Right. So... 
well, in Nigeria, if you grow if you grow up in Nigeria, and still, in fact, I think it's still the same thing now. There were only three professions that were known to people. Those would be medical doctor, lawyer, or engineer. You know, and I loved science. I loved biology. Biology was my favorite subject in school. In fact, I I don't think I had like the best biology teacher. I had other science teachers that were like the best in the in the city in the the state. But you know, biology teacher wasn't the best. But I would like push her and ask questions and just be really this annoying kid. That's kind of how I was. Uh, but you know, just to show you how how much I really loved biology. So, you know, when it came time to choose what to do in college, I was like, oh, I want to go study medicine because, you know, that's the only thing we got taught um, was cool or was the career to pursue. And then my dad was like, why do you want to study medicine? I was like, because I want to study the human body. You know, that's kind of how. <laughs> so he was like, well, if you want to study the human body, you should probably be studying anatomy and not medicine. You know, like, I think he was trying to get us to think a bit more um organically about what we wanted to do with our lives you know mm. so even though society or at least the school counselors would kind of already always push kids towards some of these more visible careers he was almost always like think about it let's walk through through this you know what are the pros and cons why are you interested blah 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 and uh, on the other hand he was also it was also a case where there was a lot of competition to get into these programs, you know, the medicine, science, sorry, engineering and law. So my dad was like, why not go for something that you're probably going to enjoy? It's probably going to be easy to get into. And it's, it, it lines up more with your interest than just what everybody wants to do, you know? So, so that's kind of how I ended up studying environmental science. Um, and ooh, that's the thing though. I, I did try for medicine a couple of times. I couldn't get in. It was quite mm. tough. It was like really tough and somehow maybe it was just the pressure I would just not perform enough to to get through but you know um so I kind of carried on through studying environmental science but it was very it was very much about managing pollution very much about because obviously it's uh it's, it's an applied science at this point not, not basic science but that's where I got lucky I had I was I was very close friends with a couple of teachers, a couple of professors at the time, who were very much into doing basic, fun basic science, or at least were sort of standing against the status quo at, at the time in school, which was just drab research, drab science, you know, basically repeating yourself, what we what we call me to research in my lab these days. You know, my, my professor's lab, my professor would say, it's me to research. There's nothing there's nothing new in there. You know, it's like you're just you're just moving from one location to another and asking <laughs> yeah. the exact same question. <laughs> you know, so, so I, I was close friends with these professors and they would just always talk about what exciting research could be like and stuff like that. So I think they really did help to sort of fill a void in my college experience, you know, my university experience, because I was I was actually getting quite bored you know I was, I was going there's nothing fun here I don't know what I'm going to do with my life after this I do not want to work in the oil industry like I don't want to do that I mean the first time I saw an oil well in Nigeria I cried that day like I cried the whole mm. evening I was like there's a lot of devastation going on and you know that you're not you're sort of against the current if you try to make any change there that's there's no way to make any changes there you know like impact and whatnot so Anyway, but these professors really sort of set the tone for my interests. 
because again, I loved biology, but I hadn't really had the opportunity to really explore it. And so that's also where I heard about, uh, from them, I heard about a short course in Uganda, well, organized by a UK-based charity, uh, the Tropical Biology Association. And they would organize one month long courses in three African countries, I think, at the time. And one of them was Uganda. And I got chosen to attend one of those. And it just, it was like a turning point in my life, mm. you know, because then it suddenly, everything before then had been, you know, gradual. You know, my dad making me watch documentaries and meeting these professors and, you know, just my general college experience was just kind of gradual. But then this, this sort of hit home. It was like all of the dreams that I had about biology, about doing stuff in the field that I did, I had never articulated, just sort of came to bear, you know? So because uh, during that course, I listened to a lecture where this uh, Swedish professor was describing research and her a PhD student had uh, conducted in Cote d'Ivoire. And basically what the student was doing was they would climb up into the forest canopy and they would uh, stay there sometimes three nights at a time and just record flower scent. Like they would collect flower scents for, you know, GT and whatnot. And they would also look at the bats that were visiting the four flowers. So I was, I, I felt like, oh my gosh, this is <gasps> the type, this is the stuff of documentaries that I was, you know, watching as a kid yes. that, you know, I just, I think I got blown away to it. I got blown to pieces and what is what it was, you know, I was like, I cannot believe this is happening in West Africa. You know, that's not possible. Oh, like, oh my gosh, tell me more. How can I do this? Like, <laughs> so um, <laughs> it was, it was really, it felt like a pilgrimage, like, a, like, a, like, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, this is what I've, I've kind of always dreamt of this. I just didn't know, um, you know, this, level of exciting research you know for me because you know being up in the forest canopy is like the weirdest I climbed trees as, as, a, as a kid too that's the other thing I climbed trees so it was like oh my gosh I love climbing trees I could just go sit there and not be bothered <laughs> by anything or people or whatever like I was just uh daydreaming I think it was uh, uh yeah uh, yeah Anyway, so after that course, I um, and we, I think we also caught bats during that course, but we weren't allowed to touch them because we weren't, we hadn't been, you know, rabies vaccinated. That's uh, one of the things you have to do if you're dealing with bats, right? So I got back to Nigeria, and at that time I was shopping for a master's project, and uh, so uh, it it almost felt like an instant decision, you know, mm. because I had tried. Well, I hadn't quite tried a lot of a number of things, but I had contemplated a number of projects. I just wanted it to be fun, you know. So after that course, I got told that, you know, Bat Conservation International was also providing funds for, you know, grants for projects. So I was like, get me on, you know. <laughs> so I applied, you know, got funded. And in fact, that Swedish professor then got her PhD student to come over and train me on bat handling techniques and teach basically help me set up my project which was like the best thing ever. Wow. There was nobody in country who could help with this. Like not anybody we knew, or at least not even until now, it, I can I can tell you that the, there are no PhDs in Nigeria for people who've done bioecology or bad biology. It's maybe a couple who have done um, sort of bad disease ecology, which is like health, human health related stuff. But yeah, so what I just meant is it just sort of set me up and yeah, it went on from there. 
Oh my gosh, that's so fun. So what school did you go through and what did you end up studying? And then I'm assuming that laid the groundwork for your PhD, right? Right. So, well, as soon as I got into this mysterious world of bats, like it, okay, so there's this sense that you get where it's like, okay, I, I wanted to do something exciting and whatnot. And then this kind of ends up being special because people are like, oh my gosh, you're doing this stuff that none of us can do. And it kind of felt special for that reason as well. Yeah, thank you. So I don't know. It's like, <laughs> it feels like you have a special power, like it's like some kind of superpower, you know? So anyway, the that, that master's was at the University of Benin, but I had already been applying to go to the UK to study with one of the world's renowned bioecologists as well. Mm. One of the one of the more sort of fundamental tests for bats. So as soon as I was done with my field work, well, just about when I was being done with my field work, I got the scholarship, you know, like I got a couple of scholarships that would pay my way uh, to the UK. So I went off to University of Leeds to study um, biodiversity and conservation masters. And that was a research master's as well. It was, sorry, research and teaching. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Coursework, rather. So I, I did that and I went off to Southwest in England to do my field work for like six weeks, you know, just not trapping bats, but recording, doing bat acoustic uh, work. And that was just exciting. You know, <laughs> so it was like, you know, skills building up from, you know, being taught how to handle and trap bats. And, you know, this guy, taught me all kinds of you know bat trapping skills and then I picked up skills from being in the UK and of course I, I, this is this is the thing right so as soon as I was hooked on bats it wasn't a case of do you want to do bats or do you want to do something else or would you do this for now and then do something else later it was like okay I'm so like this is it like you, you <laughs> really they had I don't I haven't seen okay, maybe nobody has tried but I haven't seen it better offer yet so sorry I, I love they have your heart that, but <laughs> um so it, it was automatic. It was just, I think it became a thing of, of okay, so now I'm sold on bats. It's going to be bats all the way. But, um, you know, how do we make it exciting? How I want to go crawling in caves. I want to go climbing mountains. You know, I, I kind of want to do all these things. Like, since I got back from my Leeds Masters, I actually did an independent research uh, where I was looking at bats in caves. Like, because, you know, bats are everywhere. They take you to all these really cool habitats, right? It's like, some of the most fun landscapes I've been is because, you know, I was looking for bats or wow. just all of these amazing things, amazing things. So um, my PhD was sort of set to be bats. You know, the question was, where did I want to do it? I didn't want to do it in Nigeria because, again, you know, uh, my master's was co-supervised by my institutional professor in Nigeria, but also with a with my co-supervisor from Germany, you know, like, so we need international expertise. There's no way I'm going to do like an effective PhD by tacking on an expert or whatever. So, and, you know, I really wanted to come to the U.S. I'd heard a lot about the U.S. education um, 
system in terms of the approach to making you this expert of your field, but also having like a really broad knowledge, at least at PhD level, you know, all with, with all of the qualifying exams, basically. I heard about the qualifying exams and I was just thrilled. I was like, I want to know all these things. <laughs> you know, after writing it, I'm like, I think I forgot half of what I read. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I really achieved my aim, but so yes. Uh, so that kind of set me off bats for life. And then I, I wanted to come to the U.S. and I got lucky. I got introduced to my professor who has just been an amazing mentor, you know, so yeah. How'd you meet your professor? Oh, so a friend introduced us. I had been telling people, look, I want to go to the U.S., find me a professor who works in the old world. Okay, so because old world bioecology is slightly different from new world bioecology. Oh, yeah. Yes, because the species, the species groups are quite different. Even though there are a couple of families that are shared between the old and new world, mm. uh, there's a lot of, there's been just besides those couple of families, uh, just two families, actually, everything else is just different and doing its own stuff. You know, so fruit bats in the old, in the new world are totally different from fruit bats in the old world. You know, so so I wanted someone who would be, you know, they won't struggle too much with the technical know-how, so to speak, of working in the old world. Whether or not they knew the taxonomy, that I knew that that's a big problem for poorly described areas, right? But at the same time, at least if they're comfortable with the ecology, then we should be fine. So I, you know, told BCI and told a couple of friends. And so friends at BCI actually introduced us and said, hey, you know, you should talk to her. She works in the old world and she's quite excited about working with African students. In fact, he didn't say that. He just said she's quite excited about training students. Like she's very big on training students. Like, so yeah, that's, we, we got introduced. I met her, I met her at um, a conference in Costa Rica mm. in 2013 and 2014, I was starting my PhD. And I think he's been quite a lovely experience. Uh, just because like from the mentorship side of things like yeah she's cool. so wow that is an amazing story <laughs> so then so then how did how did your work in Nigeria start then like what was the question that even led you back there because it sounds like you were really in depth on these other countries and studying bats in other places of the world so what brought you back to your home country? And like, what was the question you asked? And, and of course, this might be a good introduction to how you found your, the short-tailed round leaf bat. Really so yeah, how did, how did all of that come to be? Okay, uh, I really like that question because I haven't thought about it that way where, you know, it's like you're going to these different countries and doing bad stuff or getting inspired by uh, work from other countries. But so I'd already mentioned that there's very limited expertise, right? And to a certain extent, I've been quite passionate about helping to improve the capacity uh, in country and, you know, just evidence, like basic scientific evidence for you know, general ecology and of course, uh, bioecology. It wasn't even a question of whether I wanted to study or do my PhD in Nigeria. It was a question of what type of exciting question will it be, you know? Mm. Um, so in fact, that was in my original plan. Like I told my professor, I wanted to, I wanted to, so this is why I was looking for a, a professor who would work in the old world, right? I wanted to do my work in Nigeria and that's kind of what she you know, supports anyway, you know, she gets all these international students who want to go back home to do their field work. 
And, you know, so that's kind of that about going back home. But about the questions that then led me to discovering this bat um, for the first time in Nigeria. So I started off trying to do like a cave project because, you know, again, you know, climbing trees, but the types of questions that I was interested in really needed a lot of caves across lots of habitats or like a really um, broad geographical extent. In in my case, this, okay, so this is the other part of the story, right? I also wanted to work in southeastern Nigeria on the border with Cameroon. Like, I think I've, I think I, I've, I've been quite specific in a number of things I wanted to do. It's like, it's bad, it's Nigeria, it's Southeastern Nigeria. This you know, it's like... <laughs> so, because, you know, that's the, they've got the best forest in Nigeria. Like, that's the only place mm. where you find primary forest, like untouched forest left, you know, in Nigeria. And um, they're also quite, the local people are also quite sympathetic to conservation work in general, because there are a lot of, it, it has the highest concentration of NGOs working on conservation for any part of the country you know so oh wow yeah so it was like this is heaven this is mecca it's uh, and it's a biodiversity hot spot oh my gosh for bats and i just again automatic it was like an automatic decision you mm. know so but the only snag there was my cave interest wasn't quite fitting in so when we visited in 20, 2014 december um into january 2015 my press actually came out with me and we sort of started trying to find caves first of all no one's done a cave project in the area whether for bats or for any other taxa so they're fairly undocumented so to speak so you've got to find local people who know where the caves are and and try to find those caves and some of these caves were like a whole day apart there's there's Mm. no way it's going to be able to really manage like a full-scale project uh, looking at caves for the types of questions that I was interested in too. So I ended up just saying, you know, my professor and I were just sat down thinking about what to do and we were looking at this beautiful mountain landscape and she was like, why don't you look at elevational graders? I was like, yeah, that sounds fun. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, again, it meant I will be mountaineering and you know just climbing all of these fun places and going to top of ridges and whatnot so <laughs> um so that's kind of where that set off from so i sort of looked at the literature there was a lot of cool stuff to be done especially in the old world so that that's that's where it all came from so my project became a an ecological uh question about what bat communities are in the lowlands versus the highlands, you know, like, mm. and how does that change as you go up? What are, the, what are the processes driving that? And, you know, mechanistic, stochastic, you know, that sort of questions, uh, set of questions in community ecology. But then before I went out, I needed to know what species to expect. Mind you, starting 2013, we, I was already pulling together after an internship at the um, Harrison Institute in the UK. I was already pulling together a, in fact, I already had it at the time, a database of bats known from Nigeria. So mm. every bat, every bat ever collected and reported in the literature or in museums, I had it on the database. So I kind of knew what bats we had. And I was already working on that internship gave rise to a Bats of Nigeria project that we were already working on. So I kind of knew what bats we had. 
and what we didn't have that you could expect to find on either side. So where Nigeria was a gap, so to speak. Mm. So I made a list of bats that I could potentially find at my field sites, but on on the basis of it being known from either sides of Nigeria or it being known on the border. Because Cameroon's been... Cameroon has received quite a bit more uh, research for bats versus Nigeria, but we share this exciting biodiversity hotspot, you know? So it's almost you know, intuitive to kind of expect that what you find on, across the border, you find on this side. Absolutely, because so, they don't know of, country lines. <laughs> exactly. So I kind of, I kind of, you know, had a list that I was looking out for stuff. But, you know, a number of these bats that I even had didn't, didn't really have a photograph out there. So you weren't sure what it was. So you were, you were just looking out for characteristics. It was like, mm. oh, this one has got unusually large ears. Okay. That's that's enough for me, <laughs> you know. And then this one's got right. This one's really fluffy and just slightly bigger than this this other one. So that's kind of how I kept a mental note of what to expect. And so on the ninth, we we were collecting a bat, and I pulled out this one bat because you know you you trap bats and then you you go to the trap, you you pick up the bat and put it in in the bag and move it to your processing station. And so when I opened the bag and took out the bat, I was like, wow, what are you? Because it has these really big ears. Yes. It's like unusually large ears. And it had like it has like a like a button for a nose. It's like the middle of the nose is slightly flattened. And so it's like yes. roundish button. It's like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. So I uh, I think I may have said a lot of things that night to my crew. Like, you have no idea what this means. This is a bat that hasn't been caught in like 45 years. This is, this is just, I was just uh, literally talking to myself and just being so completely carried away. And oh, wow. I think they let me get on with it. Like, they, they were like, don't interrupt her. Let her just, because I, I was sounding a bit crazy, I think. Let her get it out. Let her get it out. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was really excited. You know, and so, that was quite something to have seen that species at that time. Yeah. But of course, um, 10 days later, we were running away from fire. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that. So like you had this <laughs> euphoria moment. You're like, oh my gosh, I know. here is this bat that has, like you said, that hasn't been seen in 45 years. It is in my hand. Oh my God, this is history. It, literally, we're making history right now. Yes. Then what happened 10 days later? What realization came at that moment? Right. So at uh, the time we collected, the first individual we collected that I was basically uh, going crazy about was uh, in the lowlands. And so we'd spent maybe four days at the site. And I think it must have been on the third day we caught that individual. So by the fifth, fourth day, we were done. And we started moving up to the next point on the elevation. So basically what I was doing with my project was I started off at the bottom four or five days of trapping and then I moved to the next stratum which would be about maybe 300 meters elevation you know difference from where it was coming from or 250-ish so at this point I was already now in the mountains at about 400 meters elevation and for a mountain that's steep it's got some gentle sections but it's quite a steep mountain it's not a it's not an easy thing to navigate okay it's especially at night um oh we're yeah. just we're just lucky to have like a small tableland somewhere where we could set up uh our camp and then set up traps 
So we were just out trapping. It must have been the second and third day. And it was unusually windy and hot at the same time. Usually it's quite cool in the forest because, you know, it's forest. A lot of the lights shaded out and a lot of the moisture has been trapped and kept kind of in place. So it's quite, it's not cool, cold. It's like cool. It's like nice. It's not hot, hot. It's not very bad. So this was, it felt like hot air and it was windy. We could tell it was windy because the, you know, the canopy, uh, the leaves were moving a lot. But then just about when darkness hit, we started seeing from a distance that, you know, there was a ring, there was a line of fire and it felt like it was moving towards us. I was like, oh, we have to move. Oh God. Anything can happen in the forest, especially in the mountain. It could, it could move in one direction and then find you and just trap you in the forest. I, I, I just, I could not even think of an alternative at, at the point, which was, you know, uh, the only option was let's get out of here and just save our lives basically. But also we had a, a volunteer at the time who was asthmatic. And so uh, mm. I was like, we have to get her out, you know? So we made, we quickly just get, got to camp, closed uh, the traps, got to camp, protected. How do we, so we kind of protected all of our food and stuff by just getting them together, covering them with blankets, wet the blankets in case the fire came through the camp. And then we uh, took all of our equipment that could not be replaced in country. Because it was quite a bit because everybody had something on their back that was quite heavy and mm. in fact someone had to carry something on their head it was a mad rush to to protect and save ourselves at the same time so we kind of just made a run for it and by the time we got to the village it was almost must have been one o'clock or at least definitely past midnight at this point by the time we were setting up tents in the village to sleep that night because we couldn't go into people's houses it was just not fair you know to yeah. go bothering people at that time and you know we 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 hadn't realized that fire was a problem in this place, or at least as bad of a problem. So, so yeah, so that night we got, got into the village, the nearest house, we just pitched our tent right, right behind in the backyard, like, cause you know, there's no, there's no fencing. So we just got in, camped there and just sort of try to be grateful that we were able to escape, so to speak. Yeah. So, so that was within a space of less than two weeks, we went from oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like, we're so privileged, so happy, so just excited that we're, we're, we're you know, in the field and finding the species. And then, oops, fire will destroy its habitat, you know? So I can't even begin to describe all of the emotions I felt. I think I went from being disappointed that, you know, we were going to lose a species habitat because you wouldn't even know how extensive the fire would get at this point it, it had gotten out of hand it had gotten beyond the level where local people could potentially stop it okay mm. so it, it was basically there's a there was a big trail up the of like a big line long line up the mountain of just fire proceeding through the forest you know so mm. i was quite terrified but then as you can imagine i was also quite terrified that this is it. I don't, I no longer have a PhD project, you know, like, cause, uh, again, this is the reason why I wanted to be at this site, right. To be in undisturbed forest, but, uh, luckily it stopped just about 200 meters of our, that camp that we had wow. escaped from because there was That's a stream. so close. I know. Oh my gosh. There was a stream coming down, um, the mountain. Uh, and so that, I know, I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> 
So, <laughs> but it didn't stop immediately because, you know, we you know, went into the village, tried to talk to people. They were like, no, no one's going to care about fighting fires. The government has tried and a few other NGOs have tried, you know, like just don't even bother. You know? So, well, we had to leave, first of all, to confer with my advisor and say, look, this is terrible. I don't know what to do. Talk to me, you know, give me hope. <laughs> Because I really did lose hope, I have to say. But I think we found a way around it. Mm. Man. Yeah. Man, you're just like taking me through that emotional roller coaster. I can't even. <laughs> no, don't apologize. No, I'm just like putting myself in your shoes and I just can't even. I yeah. can't even fathom like what that yeah. had to have felt like. Well, one, literal fear for your life. And then two, like, oh my gosh, my academic career could be toast and then three what about this species that i just found what's going to happen to them and the rest of them oh my gosh i would have drank a lot that night goodness (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and it's it's such an interesting species in the sense that it's like do not even disturb it's like it, it needed you know how you go into a hotel and you say do not disturb put that sign up on your door mm-hmm. or, you know, even at home and you just say, do not, this is the species. This is that species that says, do not disturb, mm-hmm. you know? So I was just running through all the motions of what are we going to do? If you say everybody else has, has tried to, you know, stop fires in the past and you're saying we can't do anything about it. You're kind of, you're just taking away all of the, potential for stuff you've taken away all the hope or anyway so it was it was quite an interesting and terrifying uh period yeah so then so then what was the next step so i'm assuming like an action plan was made so so what did you do next to either combat this issue or find a way around it or did you move sites so so what did you do well i did move sites so i i spoke with my advisor and she was like well, let's confer in a couple of days after you know, you know, the condition of the fire. Did it stop? Like, how far did it get? Blah blah blah. So we kind of conferred, and you know, after we didn't, we didn't go to investigate. I think I was really mad at the community people at this time. I was quite upset with them. So we didn't go back into the forest to see the extent. But our partners who had sort of looked through to see how far it got came back and said, "Hey, it stopped short of your camp," and sort of told us how how bad it was. But what I just meant was that camp was toast. There was no way we we're gonna keep working there, so we had to move, like, head more southwest where it was still good forest at that elevation, um, and you know, carried on surveying. But at this time, the field season was already like kind of not not really coming to an end. But I had run out of cash. Okay, so this is the this is the this is the really I don't know if this it's if it's the same thing with other people doing work in the field because of the uncertainties of you know transportation and you know getting people to work with you like local assistants and all that because I I usually have a big team okay you make a budget for one thing and then you get into the field money just disappears okay <laughs> you know it's like what are we gonna do but the other thing is also I think this was the second day of trapping at this site and for you to make that journey to that site it costs a lot of money okay mm. so. I paid porters and, you know, field assistants to come work with us. And and we had to evacuate and not able to use that site. So that site was just basically had got a lot of money and just 
went to ashes more or less. And at this time I was really quite broke already. So we had to call it and go recover, go try to raise more funds and come back the next year. So yeah, that was, that was the intervention we, well, that was the next line of um, action we took for the PhD, part of the work. But I think there's something about just knowing that, okay, if you say everybody else has tried and there's nothing we can do, how about we sit down and take stock of what people have done and see if there are gaps in what they did? Mm. And maybe we can then start to think, oh, maybe there's a solution here or there. That's so that's kind of the approach we took. <clears throat> so we had we started having meetings, you know, small group meetings, but also uh, a town hall meeting to say, guys, something has to happen, you know. And it's funny because when we're having some of the more individual or small gathering meetings, <clears throat> people would say, oh, no one's going to care. No one's interested in fire, you know. They, it even burns their farms. They're not interested in stopping it. But during the town hall meeting, like, people came with raw emotions. They were like, my farm got bumped two years ago. Like, oh, my entire life was gone in an instant, you know. Like, people were so mad. If mm. I got to it about someone who died of a broken heart just because all of his life work was gone because fires had come through. So these fires will originate from farms where people during just before the planting season will try to take out the brush. And so for farmers who, who are not you know careful, this can then uh, become a wildfire that goes to other people's farms, but of course also the forest. You know, so um the the local people were already just sick of it. You know, like so even though a couple of people have said this wasn't possible, we'll play this stuff here and there, a good number of people were like, let's do something and I'm happy this is happening. Uh let's 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 come together and make it work. Mm. You know, so so that was that was really encouraging because that just meant, okay, now we can, you know, talk to people and and make it work. And yeah. So that's uh, and that was also the year we we decided to launch our NGO because there were two other things we noticed. Well, at least one other thing we noticed. You know how I said this area, uh, this is Bokilan, Afi Mountain Wildlife Sanctuary, Koshiba National Park, um, Bay Mountains, that it had the highest uh, number of uh, NGOs or at least conservationists working in the area. But most of these, in fact, all of this work had been on iconic megafauna, you know, like gorillas, mm -hmm. elephants, and um, dream monkeys and whatnot. Now, that's good. And those have been, you know, they've been umbrella species in their own right. But here's the thing. So local people would say, do not touch a gorilla, do not touch an elephant because, you know, so-and-so... Uh, government's going to come after you, so-and-so is going to come after you. But then take everything else. Mm. We're like, this has to stop. Like, we have to let people know if it's a conservation area, if it's a national park where you can't take anything out, then you can't take anything out. Like, it's meant for all species. It's not just for gorillas or elephants. So that's kind of where the name Small Mammal Conservation came out of. It's like, not so much how mammalogists would think of small mammals being just rodents. It was more like small-sized mammals uh, um, matter too. You know, mm. it's like small-sized mammals are important too. It's not just the megafauna, guys. 
you know, so that's kind of, um, it was all these different things, even though we, so what planned that the NGO should sort of be launched after our PhDs is like, you know, go focus on your PhDs, finish that first. But with this problem, it was obvious. It was like, there's no way around this. We can't wait another five years before we start this journey, mm. this bad attention, you know, so. Wow. Wow. So the, all this is happening, like all culminating at the exact same time. So you're like f- coming up with a new funding to start a new, essentially all over again. And then you also launch an NGO at the same time. Wow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. so let, let's get to the next phase then. So Okay, so you, you, I'm assuming then you got more funding and you're going to a different portion, a different field site. So how did all of that come together? What did, what did, what was the new project? What were you studying? And then also, how did you balance that with the NGO? Were, were they, was it like a natural, you know, marriage or was it just a lot of extra work or, or how did, how did all that go right. down? Yeah, so, uh, well, my projects questions did not change it was just that we had to abandon that site so Mm. that was good because that meant we could carry on with all of the conceptual work that we already did on this project okay so um, i'm sure you 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 know how rigorous it is to divide to design a project and make it work um so so i'm happy we didn't have to change questions but we oh, just have to find awful. the right site i know um so we just have to find uh, an alternative site uh, for this in fact i call it fire camp but the local people call it iroro camp so i don't know whatever that camp that got toasted so we just found an alternative to it but so here's the thing before now i we would typically so our field team would typically you know talk to local people when we come in to do work and we will, you know, be out doing field surveys after having met them. And then right after that, we always try to schedule uh, some sort of either education or outreach event with the local community and then try to touch as many schools. If, if it's a big community that's got a lot of schools, maybe choose a couple. But if it's just got one or two, then go to both schools and, uh, you know, try to um, basically educate people. So it, it was kind of our MO, okay, to do research and then do community education. Mm. But obviously, this was way beyond community education. This wasn't just, oh, bats are fun, bats are provide all these ecosystem services. Like, no, you need to stop destroying bat habitat. You know, so the original plan of just educating people became an expanded plan where we, first of all, had gone in to just focus on doing field work do all the research and then dedicate about two week, a two week period where, you know, you're talking to different communities and talking to different people and kids and, you know, adults and whatnot. So you could say it was extra work, but because it's part of our MO, we didn't think of it as an impediment, if you see what I mean. Yeah. If anything, I think at the time we considered it just as critical as the research itself, even though I don't think a lot of academic advisors will appreciate that. But my my professor is kind of this ecologist who is more on the let's collect all that conservation ecology evidence and then use that to, you know, do real life conservation projects. So she's very much, she was very much on the beat, so to speak. 
you know, mm. so she was very much on the beat with this. So it wasn't hard to justify that we needed to engage people, you know, train rangers. And because first of all, there's always fire in this place, but nobody was keeping records. Mm. No records whatsoever, you know, so, so we started training rangers and started talking with them about what they could potentially need in the future to help us, you know, make sure we don't get these types of fires or even at least stop them as soon as they start out. So yeah, we spent uh, some time doing this Mm. after field work. Which I mean, yes, one, and just real quick, I'm going to go on a quick tangent here. I am so glad that you brought that up because that is what I've been saying for so long. Like, cause I was very science uh, focused when I started my um, academic career as well. And then the more I got into the public area, the more I'm like, it doesn't matter if no one knows I could be in the field, which I mean, all of us scientists, we would much rather be in the field studying really cool animals or whatever our project is, wildlife, nature, whatever. But if no one knows, then does it even matter? Does it even matter right. that, we, that you and I know about this amazing bat if nobody else knows that lives with them? Right. I'm so glad that your advisor <laughs> was all about that. Gosh, yes. I, yes. What, I, I wish that that message could just be like shouted at the rooftops because it is so vitally important. If the general right. public doesn't know, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's probably what we should say. It's so fucking important. You said yes. I swear. I like, girl, you can swear as much as you want. It is. It's like, God damn it, people. Like, uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so that was just my little tangent because I'm just like, oh my God, I like, need to meet your professor because like, Jesus, she sounds freaking amazing. Yes. The fact that she was okay and it's, it's even shitty you have to say that word okay with you doing this legit outreach work that was actually going to save in the long term, like your species. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She was definitely mm. important. Yeah. Mm. This is what you have to do. That's fine. Go for it. Nice. So were, were fires the main threats to these bats? Were there, were there other things that you found that were also like really devastating them? And then how how were you working to help mitigate that? Right. So, you know, you find a species, if you see that fire threat and you're sort of losing your shape more or less, and you're thinking, okay, I have to find the roosts. If I know what mm-hmm. the roosts are, then we can have like the targeted protection program. Okay. Uh, because on the one hand, you know, you, you protect the forest because the forest is for foraging, but you don't know what's happening with the roost. And unfortunately, we don't know the condition of roosts that were previously known from Cameroon, if they were still existing, or uh, at least there was uh, sufficient data to suggest that a number of roosts had been destroyed. Mm. Well, not data, but reports to suggest that roosts had been destroyed in Cameroon. So it was... It was almost like, again, automatic decision. We need to go find roosts. So began the cave searches. And uh, my field partner and husband eventually was also doing a cave bat project, looking at fruit bats. And that fruit bat species, at least in other parts of the species range, is known to co-roost with our bat. Oh. When it's not hunted. So that fruit bat species is hunted in Nigeria, hunted at our field sites. And that's kind of what Ben, my husband, was studying at the time. So both our original cave search plan and his cave search sort of combined, and we could not find a roosting cave for the species until, you know, 
we can just kept looking. But we found only one cave out of 45 caves that were searched. You know, a good number of those 45 caves are hunting caves. It's like people go there to hunt. But so that's the thing, right? Wow. People, the local community would know where the caves are if they hunt at those caves. So yes, we definitely had a bias sample size where it was mostly hunting caves we were going to. But then what that just meant is you would not find the species where anything is haunted, where anything is disturbed, where there's any form of disturbance, you know? So, so it, it was obvious that cave disturbance was a problem for the species. And, you know, a couple of other, I think previous reports about the species had suggested that cave disturbance was a problem. So we immediately just identified those two as the key problems and haven't actually seen any other kind of threats beyond those two. Okay. So cave disturbance from fruit bat hunting and potentially other types of activities like, you know, people moving, because these are quite rural areas. So mm. people moving between villages and needing to use the forest. If you get rained on or if you know, it needs to rain, shelter in a cave. If you shelter in that cave, you should not be there, you know, being a trouble. Just just be quietly there and just leave. Otherwise, you know, you disturb our bat. So those are the two fire and cave disturbance but of course that that will just mean you i can't be in texas trying to finish my phd and protecting a cave we have to work with the local people okay these are the guys who are going to make you work in fact they're the ones they're the ones who are primarily likely to use caves besides even the hunters so it was again automatic decision you have to work with local people I'm not sure if I answered the second part of your question, but no, that was good. No, that was great. So then, once you found that other main thing that was really threatening your bat species, what did you do next? So, how did you engage the local people? Because from what I remember of watching the Whitley Award presentations and stuff, you were able to get policy changed as well. So. How, how did you do all that? Was that through the NGO? Was that through your work, like through your PhD, or how? I mean, to get policy change, like, girl, that is fucking amazing. Like, that is like every single like <laughs> biologist it. dream. <laughs> it's like every biologist dream is like, oh my god, you got the law to be changed. Like, how did you do that? Like, so take me right. through. How, how did that happen? So you have all the status supporting. Our bats are in trouble. This is why we know the main causes. You're engaging local communities. How did that all culminate together into changing policy? Right. So first off, this is not, we did not cause a change in national law. Okay. So it's mm-hmm. not like okay. it was national. So this is a local community or what you might say bylaws and regulations. But that's the thing. When we sat down with people and said, during that town hall meeting, I said, if you've always had this fire as a problem, how come you haven't done anything? How do we like, well, we have laws. We can send people on exile. You pay fines. How much is the fine? There was no defined fine. There was nothing, you know, it, it, it really felt like it was just a word of mouth type of law, okay, mm. or regulation that he had. So we're like, no, you've got to sit down. You've got to set set the record straight and let people know what the expectations are, you know provide for any type of default, so to speak, to any type of rule that would protect the forest or protect farms as well. So 
But we didn't want to drive that. We wanted it to be them doing this. Mm. So we gave them like a year, go make this law, you know, write it down and, you know, we'll help type, it will help do all of the other logistics. But I want you to sit down in meeting after meeting, deciding how much for what type of offense. Because, you know, whether you like it or not, these guys have been using fire for a long time and they know... You know, to a certain extent, they really know what works. Okay. Mm -hmm. They really know what works. And so, right there in some of those meetings, we we're getting told what the solutions were. We we're getting told things like on a windy day, you cannot burn after 10 o'clock because then it, it already becomes very dry and, you know, your fires can spread real quick. Like, you know, these are all like stuff that a, Fire manager sits on at the front of his computer and says, oh, there's enough wind, there's this, there's that. Like, But people were already doing this in the local community, okay? Even mm. though they didn't have gadgets or whatever, they're like, don't burn on a windy day after 10 o'clock, you know? So they, they had all these list of things, but they hadn't quite put those into the law. So we sort of helped them harmonize, so to speak, some of these things that they were saying. And then that's the other thing too. Some of these uh, ideas were also coming from women whose um, ideas aren't typically represented in some of these laws. So because we, we could spot that, we sort of helped to bring in some of those women's ideas. Like, That's you know, of course, the leadership is all men, but we helped to bring in some of these ideas from women and the community leadership. And so that's kind of the role we played. And then we helped them print it, like type it up, print it. Like <laughs> there was this afternoon when after like maybe a year and six months and we weren't getting any physical copy of the law, we're like, tonight we're going to sit with you and type that thing up, you know, like just bring it, you know. So we sat on that tree actually <laughs> and, we were, <laughs> and we were typing the law and, you know, we typed it up, prepared it and asked Asked, uh, asked a couple of uh, colleagues if we're, you know, we're not a couple of lawyer colleagues, so to speak, mm, you know, mm -hmm. questions and just, just uh, you know, sort of pro bono legal services to help us see, hey, are we doing the right thing? We're not wanting to offend the Nigerian government. So we kind of made sure it was all good. And yeah, that became their law, so to speak, even though they said they had laws. They weren't really having any no enforcing anything but mm. this was enforceable and obviously became the document by which people would be educated and people would know what to expect okay so it wasn't like but well, one person gets a and the other person gets b everybody was gonna get and let's Same not thing. forget this is a protected area but government enforcement was quite weak. Um, so in such areas, you obviously rely a lot on local community enforcement strategies and mechanisms. So it was obvious that going the local community enforcement route was like the way to go. You know, even though we're still working with rangers and still working with the Forest, forestry Commission, it, it was just obvious that if you wanted to get it done, this is it. And, you know, some of this is also coming from a socio-ecological survey, well, so the sociological aspect of work that my, my husband was also doing in the area where we sort of, you profile that community and you realize that it's mostly, there's an aspect of enforcement that works when it comes from not just community leadership, but what they call age-grade leadership. So it's like people in the same age group. Mm. you've got so like the social the social subjective norm is very strong in these communities basically so 
that's kind of where we decided, well, this is what we have to do for now, at least. Let's, let's get people. So yeah, and that, that helped. Mm. Two years in a row, no fires. Oh, that was going to be my next question. Like, so ha- have you seen a difference ever since that was put in place? And it sounds like two years without fires. It's amazing. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So, so that's kind of what happened. Uh, and in fact, up until now, after that 2016 fire and then all of our engagement, there hasn't really been fire in this community, but there was a neighboring community that has been encroaching on the southwest side of it. And that, there was a short fire outbreak on their end. And of course, now with the Whitley Fund, we're now targeting this community. In fact, we visited them the other day because, you know, again, you've got to get people on the table and to address these issues. Mm-hmm. They were encroaching and now have some illegal farms on uh, this um, sanctuary. But again, told that there's been some community legwork to pull that back. In any case, the point is, because they don't have any sort of engagement, there was like a small outbreak on their end, and um, we're hoping that we should be able to turn that around. Mm. So, Wonderful. So it's great to hear that. It must feel feel so fulfilling to be like, wow, this work really is working. And I guess so. I guess the next logical question then is, so what now? So now that everything, you have all this amazing work established and you successfully got the Whitley Award, which is unbelievably amazing. Like kudos to you. That is such a high Thank honor. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So, so now that you have this amazing grant, what, what's the plan now? Where do you go from here? Right. So the cool thing about you know, getting the Whitley grant is that while we were working in just this one community and just trying to get them to, because they're, they're, they're really the major community, okay? So you're not going to take that away from them. They've got like a big portion of their um, settlements on the boundary of the park. And so, you know, that makes them like a big flashpoint. But there are other communities as well. And in the past, we've sort of started talking with them to say, how about we set you guys up to go talk to them? And they're like, no, these other communities are going to, you know, get upset. You're going to say it's land grabbing. We want to do blah, blah, blah. Like don't control our land. We'll control your own land. Mm. But if us as the NGO who's been helping out with this, go to them, then it can help um, facilitate the conversation and whatnot. So that's the amazing thing about the Whitley Fund, that it's going to help us upscale this project across uh, you know, like to be able to really cover the site. So, because we're looking at 16 communities, but of those 16, about eight of those are like what they call landlord communities. They are really on the edge of the park and they've mm. been there for longer and whatnot. So they they are the focus. Okay. So, but without the Whitley Fund, we would not even be able to think of this. I mean, we we were dreaming of it. But of course, you know, Whitley funds come in and then now we're, we're really ready. We think we can do it. And we've started talking to these communities. We started having early, early time meetings, like first contact meetings to set up uh, stuff. So, so that's the plan. Now, in terms of what next, it's really about sort of launching all of these big steps that we've sort of come up with as part of the intervention plan, okay? So for FIRE, we've decided 
to launch an early warning fire prevention system where, you know, you're in the U.S. and you're familiar with what happens a lot in California. I don't know if you've traveled kind of between this Texas, California area. It I'm really in Colorado. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were in Florida. No, no, no. I'm actually in Colorado. So you're, so you're kind of in the zone. So you're familiar with the idea of letting people know that there's a fire ban for so-and-so period or so-and-so area, or there is a, um, you know, fire hazard warning. So it's moderate, it's high, risk is high and whatever. So that's kind of what we're trying to set up. Okay. Mm. So and this really came from a woman's suggestion, like an elderly woman who said, look, all of these people that have come to us in the past have said, do not burn from January. Like, and she's like, how is that even possible? How is that real? Like, because I need to be able to burn at least before the rains come. But if only I could hold what day is good to burn. And I'm like, you are really just talking about a system that exists elsewhere. We just haven't given it a name. You know, because wow. she, she was going, she was going on and on about how you know the rainfall pattern has changed. You can't even predict. You can't be so sure when it's going to rain and when it's okay to burn. Like if only, like she was just thinking out loud. She wasn't even suggesting that that, that should be a solution. She was like, if only there was a way. And I was like. There you have it. That's the you know, so I know something, actually. Smokey the Bear coming into Nigeria. I know, I know. So, so yeah, that's that's exactly where it came from. So what we're, what we're planning to do is to set up all of these weather stations across these sites. Oh, wow. Uh, these communities to sort of keep track of stuff. Because, again, this is a mountain system where it could be raining in this one community today and not the other. You know, mm -hmm. like, because... Everybody's kind of around the border, the boundary of the park. Okay. So it's raining here, but not there. This guy can burn today or sorry, if it's raining here and it's not, it's not mad rain, but it can still burn. Then the, the soil moisture is just good enough to prevent a wildfire, but just dry enough to allow you to burn successfully, you know, mm. but the guy on the other side who hasn't seen rain for like five days, please do not burn. So that's kind of what we're trying to do. Okay. But we're going to obviously be using real time data and some of the more historical data sets that we have access to from our partners and our remotely sensed data as well. So that's the plan for that one. It, it's, it sounds complicated, but it's a really cool step uh, process. It's like one step after the other. You predict, and then you communicate to the local people, and then you monitor, and then you're ready to go if there's a fire outbreak at all. So we've mm. got all the, we've got like a chain of you know things to do if you know this happens. So that's that's on the fire side of things. Now on the bat hunting side of things, which is bat hunting equals cave disturbance. Well, now there are two things about caves. So we have to find more caves. Like it's it's deathly essential to the success of this project to find more caves. So the plan is to go out, go out, trap bats and track them using, well, I can't really confirm what it is now, but we're probably going to be using a GPS uh, device, but the engineers have not confirmed that they're able to get the size that we need mm. uh, to run for a few hours than just being powered on. But anyway, either a GPS, if if we can get it, or radio tags. And those will be passively monitored because, again, this is not where you can use a Yagi because it's it's a, it's a terrible terrain to do that on. So anyway, so we'll tag bats, track them to their caves. 
and then identify those caves as priority protection caves. Like, do not go near these caves. You need to leave these bats in peace. But if there are caves where fruit bats are known, or fruit bats also use these caves for roosting, then we'll also prioritize these caves and just work with local people to ensure that fruit bat hunting is banned at those caves. Now, since what that means is you're going to be cutting back on people, either meat source or um, income. Mm -hmm. So when we did our problem tree, you could see that if you take out people's income, you're not going to be happy. You're messing with I mean, absolutely not. I mean, that's asking a lot of anybody. Right, exactly. So, so what we're planning to do is to set up alternative livelihood projects, but we're starting out with a livestock farm. So this livestock farm is basically what's probably Africa's largest rodent, okay? And it's been hunted to almost extinction in the forest. But people say they prefer that, after a questionnaire survey, they prefer that to, you know, other domestic meat sources like cow, beef, even chicken too, you know? Mm. So they have, they'll have that first before they come to chicken, if you want to give them a poultry, for example. So so that's kind of what we're starting with because their excuse for eating bad meat is, oh, it's got this really nice gamey taste. You know, it's um, this really good bush meat flavor that you can't get anywhere else. You can't mm. get it in cows and, you know, so, so we're now working with local people and a consultant to set up farms where what that just means is you're providing an alternative protein source and also a livelihood source. So we'll see... We should be getting started on that around October. Wow. But the field survey to track bats and find your caves will start in late December, January. Mm. Yeah. So so we're still working with the engineers to to get that really low weight, low load GPS trackers. Mm. Yeah, because those are really tiny bats. Like they are not a fruit bat. Any anywhere close. Exactly. So it's got to be somewhere around 0.5 grams. And Whew, that is tiny. It's a real it's a real struggle. It's a real struggle because they've they've tested a couple of designs, but the problem has always been finding a battery small enough to power the device. It's like just powering it to keep it going for just just a bit longer than you know 10 minutes or whatever. And I think they have assured that they're trying you know one day they're optimistic the next day they're like we don't know you know we're gonna just have to wait and see if it works so Hmm. but i'm very hopeful fingers crossed wow like you are (laughs) such an inspiration just oh my god all the work you're doing and isn't it i just i just love going through these stories too because your love for this one bat species has turned into all of these different things, which is so cool. Like, it's so cool. It's like Thank to actually you. solve what I love, I actually need to do all of these other millions of different things, which if you see on the outside without going through the whole story, like you just took me through, people might not put two and two together. It'd be like, True. so why are you talking about a bushmeat farm on the outside of the park to save the body? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's connecting it's, them. Yeah. It, it's just this right. way. Conservation work is just so cool. And what well, one that's solution- why it's what you're doing too, right? Because you're bringing these stories to people. And, yeah. You know, it's, it's just yeah. 
And what one solution might be for you in Nigeria with this one particular species of bat might work somewhere else or a whole different solution might work as well. Exactly. So it's it's very different. Like the it might be the site, it might be the culture, it might be the species itself that lends to a whole different suite of solutions, which is just so cool. <laughs> That's yeah. this is awesome. I agree. Awesome. Well, I love, okay, so I'd love to get back to you for a second because, I mean, obviously your work is amazing and you've done some absolutely cool shit. It's just unbelievable. And then you specifically, so you are a woman, obviously, as anyone can hear your voice, you are a woman. And being, just having been in this field as well as a woman, it's a very much a male-dominated culture. And I I would like if if you could just explore that with me for a little bit. Have, have you... What have your experiences been? If you've had any negative, and if you have, how did you work through that? And then if you would like to give any advice to any other women who might be in the field that might just need a little bit of encouragement. Right. So, yes, you're right about potential negative side, not not side effects, not side effects, but negatives out of society's perception of women. And how that may have affected my work. Well, to be honest, I think I think my my parents did set like a really good uh, foundation for that as well. In the sense that, even though I hadn't seen a woman scientist as a child, you know, my dad would always talk of scientists as people. That's it. That's where it ended. Mm, it wasn't wow. a thing of. There were men or women or one person could do, one gender could do one kind of work versus the other. It was really a case of scientists to people enough. And they weren't black or white, you know, they were just people. Because, you know, there's the other thing about conservation. I don't know how much you know this, but there's a lot of thing about conservation in a lot of African countries that people say, oh, it's not for us, it's for these Western cultures. You know, conservation is not our thing. We don't do it. And I'm going, <laughs> they had to walk through their own shit too when they decided, look, what we're exploiting our stuff. Let's stop this nonsense. Absolutely. Okay, so, um, I know, I know. But they, there's this perception of, oh, you're doing a white man's job. I'm like, shut mm. up. <laughs> you know nothing. You know, so, uh, but I think my parents Dang. set the tone for that, you know, where it wasn't difficult to see myself as a scientist. You know, while I realized that uh, maybe seeing a scientist as a child or, you know, kind of growing up, uh, a woman scientist would have really helped in many ways. But I think I was helped also by my parents' perspective. That being said, I certainly have heard, heard a lot of things about, oh, you're a woman. Why should you be in the field? You know, nobody has actually said, said, I've been told something like, oh, you probably won't find a man to marry you. You know, like no man's going to take this from a woman. They want their woman at home. Oh, I just remember that actually. I think there was this professor who said that to me. A professor? <laughs> I know, I know. A professor of zoology. He studies mosquitoes. <laughs> Fuck know. your mosquitoes. Everyone hates those <laughs> creatures anyways. Jesus. I know, I know. So, um, so yeah, that, that has definitely happened. In fact, in one of the villages that I work in, Somebody who, one of the rangers came to me once and said, 
you know, the women in the village, they're talking about you and they're going, if this is how difficult school is, because, you know, they, they will always see our lights in the village when we're climbing the mountains um, oh. with our head, headlamps. So they can tell when we're in the forest. And they're like, oh, that one of the ladies said, oh, if if school is so much, such hard work, I don't want to do it. And I'm going, why didn't you encourage that woman? Why, why are you coming to tell me that sort of stupid story? You know, it's it's a case where she obviously needed some sort of, I guess, orientation or guidance or whatever. So I really Absolutely. gave it to him. You know, I gave it to him and he was like, okay, uh, maybe I'll go talk to her, you know? Um, but but that's, that's the other thing too. I And I think this is, I'm, I'm saying this from the, my husband's perspective. In Nigeria, when you find uh, a bunch of guys just coming into a forest, it's like, they definitely have a horrible plan. Maybe they're bad guys. They just want to hide out or whatever. But when there's a woman in their midst, it's like, oh, everything's soft. And, you know, the police would not quiz them too much or local people kind of trust them better because there's a woman in their midst. So I guess it really varies uh, depending on the context, but on the whole, it's quite a negative outlook for women out there. And I may not be able to call call up all of the examples, but I definitely... Uh, have dealt with issues like sometimes your your field assistants don't respect you because you know you're a woman i mean a good number of them would because in in the end i will have to pay you your money and you know you want to kind of be on your best behavior right but there are times where i have called my husband aside and said look this guy does not realize that i am leading this project and i need you to make that clear to them or we need to have a meeting you know like i've had to do that a number of times Mm. and it sometimes it does feel like a power tussle, but it really is. I mean, I, I think it is. It's what it is, right? It's a power tussle. It's a power. Um, it's a power dynamic anyway. It's just, I guess, on the one hand, you don't want it affecting your work, but when it does, you really can't help but try to address it, right? Um, so yeah, I've had issues like that. I've had issues like you cannot drive. You're a woman, like driving long distances because um, the roads are really bad. And a six-hour journey can easily become a 14-hour journey, you know. So, yes, I, I have heard comments. I can't really remember it all now. But, yeah, not always good comments. But people, because I think because bats are mysterious to a lot of people, like people consider them like, oh, my gosh, can't figure it out. I'm amazed. I think they get blindsided by that sometimes as well, like, that then becomes the focus. It's like, why are you studying bats? No longer, why are you in the forest at night? You know? Um, So it definitely has its own, uh, provides its own way out in and of itself. But yeah, for women out there, if I ever had a time when I was sort of discouraged by all of these comments. Uh, I think it must have been when my department was trying to my... So I'm also a lecturer at the University of Benin. And when I first started out, I used to get comments like, a woman has to be respectful and be quiet and not be over ambitious. So why are you doing this? Like you need to be back here in the department, just working for everybody, basically. Mm. And, you know, I stood up for myself there. I was like, I am not doing what you've asked me to do because it's not really my job anyway. You just need just anybody to dump it on and I'm not going to take it, you know? So all of your psychological analysis you're doing right now will not work on me. Uh, you're trying to manipulate me. I'm not going to fall for it. 
I mean, I, I obviously didn't say that way, but I, I found ways to get, get out of it by, I guess, just standing my ground and saying, I do not have the time for it. I have field work to do and I'm going to go do it. There, I've got all the right to go do that field work. So any of this talk about being a woman is not going to stop me. Now, when we say how, how things like that can help women when they encounter you know, setbacks, I think it probably comes down to, you know, the context, but also how that person perceives themselves in the world, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's certainly, there's certainly points where my, all of my training from my dad and, and, and development may break down under pressure, but within the limits of everyday interaction with all these people, just, I guess, stand your ground as much as you can. If you're about to lose your job, of course, uh, you're going to have to find a way around that. But stand your ground and just try to remember that you have every right to be in the field as much as any man or anybody else out there. Like, you you don't need to pander to any of their ideas or, you know, misplaced ideas, obviously, or even manipulations that they want to bring at you, you know? So if you've got every right to be there, they, they just... If you know that in and of yourself, for yourself, so to speak, you you sort of, I think it gives you that extra sense of agency as well. It's like, mm. I am going, I have the right and I don't care what you say to me. I am going to carry on doing what I'm doing because it's fun. I love doing it. But yeah, I, I would just say it's it's about being resilient. Again, it may not always work. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying People who have succumbed or people who've had issues are not resilient. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, at least on a basic level, uh, stick to it, you know, stick to it. Don't get swayed by all of these undue expectations. Like, I climb more trees than most guys I know. <laughs> no, no joke. No joke, you know? Like, That's amazing. I've scaled, <laughs> I've scaled many walls than most guys that I know. Seriously. You know, that's awesome. And, you know, <laughs> it's funny because now I've said all the glorious things about my dad, right? But again, my dad was a surveyor and that meant he was always in the field. And I can't tell you how many times I almost cried to ask him to take, take me with him to the field. Mm. I'm like, take me to the field. And he'll be like, no, the field is a very tough place. It's not a place for women, blah, blah, blah. But it's interesting because one of those days when he was going out to the field to do, you know, uh, survey work, because uh, sometimes he walks in like really amazing places, like in mangroves. And I'm going, I have never been to a mangrove. Like, take me. Um, so it just so happened that I think someone, some other partner firm had sent one of their surveyors to work with him, or he was kind of maybe trying to hire this person. I don't know, but it was a woman. And she was dressed to go in the field. I was, I was like, so what happened to her going out in the field with you? Like, <laughs> what excuse do you have now, Dad? You're taking me. <laughs> I know, but I, it still didn't break him, which was quite Aww. sad. But at least I think I made the point to him. And, you know, whenever I told them that, hey, I'm going to be studying bad, he's going to be in forest. I love forest. And I was waxing just lyrical about forest. And my dad was like, Oh, forest in Nigeria, no one's going to care about it. The government doesn't care. Mm. No one's going to listen to you. In fact, the forest is not for women. I'm like, no, you're wrong. 
first is for women and I'm going to do it. And, you know, I found ways to either avoid conversations when it was necessary to avoid them or um, stand my ground when it was necessary, you know, so. Wow, you're such an inspiration. I hope there's some, I mean, just just little girls, big girls, just women all over can just hear that message. And just, I mean, even probably just seeing you like in the field, just imagine what impression that would have made on any of the little girls that were in those communities. Like I'm thinking about me, like if I would have seen more of that and when I was growing up, because I was in a very just male dominated culture, just a small town. And, and yeah, girls didn't do that kind of stuff. Like I've been all over the world now and people are like, still to this day, they're like, where are you going? And are you coming back? <laughs> just like, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, oh. yeah. God, that was awesome. So when do you think that you'll have reached success and whatever that means for you. Well, with this bat or my career in general. Anything. What, whatever Ooh, that means. Whatever that means really for you. That's a really interesting question. It's very, it's like, you're making me do some deep soul searching. So for the bat, I think success is more, is going to be more of a journey than just this one point. Because when, if, if you're not careful, you get into this system or a cycle where you think you're now successful five years in a row, no fires. You found maybe three or five bad caves and you're protecting them and they may using those caves. And then maybe you start to sort of slack a bit because now you're like, oh, now we're successful. We've increased the number of known caves by 5%, 50%, 20%, you know, and then you slack and you're like, oh, let's go easy. But for for something like this, where it's so volatile in the sense that you need to stay on it. Otherwise, uh, you could be losing caves or you could just be losing forests if you step back, you know? So I think success is going to be on an ongoing basis. You look back and you say, oh, that's wonderful. Last five years were great. Now, you know, next five years, next five years after that, you know? But in terms of my career, success would be, let's let's joke a bit, publishing in nature. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know, I know, but I think it's going to be also a journey, but I, I think there may be highlights, okay, mm. that I would be really, I'll be really excited, like, okay, I'm ready to die, but no, I'm not, don't kill me yet. <laughs> let me carry on some other things. Um, for example, you know, just being able to establish a research culture in Nigeria as well as West Africa, where it's like really exciting research can get done. People have the capacity to design really good work. Mm. And that obviously affects whatever applied science or applied work they then take into either agri or conservation or, you know, even just the rest of biology and teaching too, because, you know, areas that have good research also have quite interesting teaching going on, like engaging teaching. So it's, for me, well, that's the thing. When you say you want to establish a research culture, it's not something that happens overnight. It, it's a gradual process. There isn't that one point. I don't think it's even something that happens in your lifetime is that, you know, you either set some things up 
Because, you know, we're, we're very big on uh, capacity building. So you either set things up and then it starts to happen. Okay, so your time's up, you're gone, but, you know, it carries on. Um, so it's very likely that what I hope for success as success may just happen after I'm gone. But at least you start to see the signs before you go. You know, research culture would, you know, include setting up a number of research stations, but also students that become independent in their research mm. with the skills that they've learned from our work and, you know, all the mentorship that we set up for them. For me, that would be success. But anytime I speak like this, I'm always like, I, I feel like I'm sacrificing some of my personal interests more academic interests that I enjoy. So in that regard, I hope I'm really able to, you know, do all that capacity and, and raising that culture, so to speak, while also pursuing my interests. Because I'm quite in, I'm quite I'm quite thrilled, as you can imagine, my natural world. And I can't wait to start to address certain questions, certain research questions which, you know, I don't currently have, I, I may have the skills for some of them, but not everything. Mm. Um, so maybe getting a postdoc and then some additional fellowship and some funding in the future to explore some of these questions. I, I, I feel like it would, it would certainly feel like success, you know? Uh, that's a very windy answer. Sorry. No, that was beautiful. Um, <laughs> that was beautiful. Well, with someone with as much ambition as you clearly have, I mean, it would just make sense. They'd be like, okay, I have all of these things that I really want to check off. And I'm sure that's not right. even getting into your personal life. I'm sure that there's other things in there as well. You're married. And so how cool that your husband is also a bat researcher. Like how <laughs> fucking cool I, is that I know. like match made in heaven <laughs> screw that mosquito guy Mother I, know. Like. <laughs> I know but we're also birthday mates like you know it's oh. like oh my gosh you're stalking me that's what you're doing don't, don't. <laughs> anyway um but yeah uh I know. I, I think we both feel quite blessed and um and pleased about that but it also has its challenges you know it's like I've heard people say, oh, I cannot work in the same office or in the same line of work as my spouse. And, you know, I, I, I certainly agree with that uh, viewpoint because you want to come home to a different type of conversations, so to speak. Mm. But what that just means is, I guess it creates its own strain on the relationship. But at the same time, it's like really convenient. It's like the most convenient thing ever. You get to travel together. You get to plan lots of things together. And, you know, when when your personal life is boring, now you have something to talk about regardless. Like, yeah. You just, <laughs> just carrying It's obligation, you know? It's like, we, we get, we get, maybe, maybe we're not doing great. We're probably not being friends or not talking at some point and then they have an obligation to meet and sit and talk about certain things we need to do for our NGO or some of our work and you know it's just quite nice I guess it keeps things running it keeps things flowing yeah know? and you nice. better to understand your work and like what I you know. do in your day-to-day -day. that's the other thing too I've got female colleagues back in Nigeria at least who not only struggle with just almost been laden with all of the home, you know, duties, so to speak. But they also struggle to convince their spouses that they need to do a certain type of uh, field work or go for mm. a conference or whatever. 
that that's just really that's just really top i think uh, I, I, I think i think one of the reasons ben was quite one of the additional attraction to ben was that you know this that i'm not gonna have to explain to anybody i need to go to a conference he knows i need to go to a conference end of story you know you don't um, need to get permission exactly you know it's like Oh, so when are we planning that conference? You know, it's, it's the conversation sort of shifts to a different direction. So I am, I'm quite grateful for that, I think. Yeah. Girl, you're freaking <laughs> awesome. You're uh, like, thank you. we've like, I feel like we barely even scratched the surface. We've been talking for a long time. <laughs> next time, next time we chat, we better have a glass of wine. Cause I feel like we'll get deep at that time. <laughs> I know, I know. Maybe it's a, uh, maybe I, I didn't margarita. know it was gonna be this enjoyable. It's like, oh, it's gonna be one of those streets just talking just get out uh, well i'm glad that i well, pleasantly surprised you and what we were getting into today yeah yeah this was this has been quite nice i'll tell you awesome well i want to make sure that if anybody listening wants to support you in some way or connect with you maybe like your story really touched them what is the best way for someone to contact you? So on Twitter and Facebook, but I also have my email address and I can provide that right now if you want, or I don't know if you're going to... It's completely up to you if you want to provide your email or if social media, right. I mean, it's completely up to you, whatever you want to provide. Right. So on social media, my name is Irorotanshi as is, and my email address uh, will be iroro.tanshi at uniban.edu or ttu.edu. Uniben, B-U-N-I-B-E-N dot E-D-U. On our website, if you find, if you try to find um, small mammal conservation organization online, if you try to just Google that, you should, it should take you straight to our website. And there's also our sort of admin email there. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I keep getting emails through there as well. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the contact for now. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And of course, like I always say, if anyone wants to reach out through me, through any of the social medias or outlets through Wildology, I will gladly put them in touch with you because that'd be wonderful. Yes. Got to keep, got to keep this community growing as much as we can and support each other. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. You are amazing. Oh, thank you. I think you're, uh, yeah, I think you're really, you've got lots of sweet words to people. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like every single time you say something, it's like lots of my, okay, so thank you so much for being a wonderful host. Awesome. And thanks thank for having you. me too. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.